The Corinthians had rationalized their sexual activity just like people today do. And of course, the city of Corinth was synonymous with sex. In fact, the verb to Corinthianize meant to have sex with a prostitute. So here are the Corinthians, carrying another one of the cruddy things of their former life into the church. Paul's going to hit another one of them. Here it is. He's going to hit the sin of immorality, and he's going to take apart their rationalization. Welcome to the start of what promises to be a compelling, if not eye-opening, couple of weeks on Grace to You as John MacArthur kicks off a study that has implications for you, whatever your marital status. From 1 Corinthians, the title of his study, Guidelines for Singleness and Marriage. And John, before we begin this series, a question to sort of set the stage. I think it's obvious that since history began, men and women have had problems in their relationships. And I, I think every generation probably thinks that things weren't this bad 30 or 40 years ago. But is that really true? Would you say that the problems single people and married people face today are worse than they've ever been? Uh, no. And I'll give you the classic illustration of that. In the book of Genesis... Things were so bad in the world that by the sixth chapter of Genesis, God drowned the whole world. Hmm. Because God said in Genesis 6, 5, that the behavior of man and the heart of man was only evil continually. Hmm. So that's par for the course in a fallen world. God literally destroyed the entire human race with the exception of eight people by the sixth chapter of Genesis. So Hmm. if you think things are worse now than they've been in the past, you don't understand the past. There are always um, more inventive ways to sin, and I suppose uh, in this particular era in which we live, there are more technological ways to sin, but the the heart of the fallen human race is exactly the same as it's always been. So what we see today is no different than the whole of human history. I was saying this on Sunday in our church— Early in Genesis, after the fall, you have marriage corrupted to the degree that you have rape, incest, homosexuality, fornication, adultery, and and you're not even halfway through Genesis. Hmm. So this is human life. So when the Bible speaks to these matters, it speaks to them in a comprehensive way. And we're going to try to help you with that in this broadcast on guidelines for singleness and marriage. You hear a lot about the pros and cons of marriage, divorce, morality, celibacy, singleness. Talk alone doesn't solve anything. Psychology doesn't have any answers. God does have a plan for expressing sexuality, dealing with temptation, and making decisions about whether to marry or not to marry. Very practical series from 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. You're looking at Christian liberty, sexual freedom, whether or not you should get married, keys to a healthy marriage, things like that. This is an excellent study for people who are married, people who want to get married, and people who think maybe they're designed to stay single. Don't miss a day of this compelling series. That's right. No matter what your relationship status is, you're going to benefit from this practical look at the guidelines for singleness and marriage. And to start off with an important lesson on sexual purity— Here is John MacArthur. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. I've entitled this section, Christian Liberty and Sex, because that really is what it talks about, and you'll see that as we begin. And in this passage, he presents the Christian's perspective on morality. 
unless you really know the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you're a Christian, unless you understand what it is to live for God, this kind of a morality is going to seem a little bit in left field. But this is what the Bible teaches. You see, the Corinthians had rationalized their sexual activity just like people today do. There are plenty of people who in the name of religion say, ah, you know, everything's taken care of, we're free in, in religion, Christianity's made us free, so we live it up. There are plenty of other people, don't you hear this all the time, say, what's the big deal about sex? It's only biology, right? I mean, we're only animals, you don't get upset when dogs do it, and what do you get upset when we do it? You hear this all the time. Man, it's just a biological thing, it's there you go, you do it, you don't get all uptight about it, it's amoral. Now, the Corinthians had done the same thing. And of course, they had a problem too because they lived in the city of Corinth. And Corinth was synonymous with sex. In fact, the verb to Corinthianize meant to have sex with a prostitute. That's how attached Corinth was to that kind of life. So they were saying, hey, our environment is overwhelming. And uh, man, we figured out theologically it's all right. And philosophically, it's just a biological act and no big deal. So we're doing it. So here are the Corinthians carrying another one of the cruddy things of their former life into the church. And this is the problem with every single difficulty the Corinthian church had. In the first four chapters, what problem did Paul deal with? Division in the church. You know why they were divided in the church? They were divided over human leaders and human philosophy. Both of those were carryovers from their former life. In chapter 5, the evil in the church was the evil of failing to discipline sin, a carryover from their former lives when they were tolerant of sin. In chapter 6 was the sin of suing one another. And you remember the Corinthian society loved to have lawsuits, and they just carried that over into their Christian life. And here they were immoral before they were Christians. They just carried that over into their Christian experience. So all of the evils there were just dragged in from their former life. And then Paul's going to hit another one of them. Here it is. He's going to hit the sin of immorality, and he's going to take apart their rationalization. Sexual sin harms, controls, and perverts the body. That's Paul's threefold argument. Point number one, it harms, verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Stop right there. Now he says, all things are possible within the area of grace, but all things are not expedient. That word comes from a Greek word, sum pharaoh, which means to profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. God will forgive, but man, the price is high. Immorality is one of those things that God forgives. If you as a Christian do that, some of you undoubtedly have committed adultery or, or fornication as Christians. If you have done that, God is forgiven totally and completely by the blood of Jesus Christ in His, in His grace. But there's a price to pay. There's a high price because there's harm built into that sin. I want to show you that by taking to Proverbs chapter 5. There is no other sin that a man or a woman commits that has built into it the deep-rooted damage that the sin of sexual immorality has. It has destroyed more people than drugs or booze ever together could have destroyed. And I want to show you Proverbs chapter 5. This is really interesting and it's very, very practical. Proverbs 5, verse 3. We'll start here. We'll stay in Proverbs a while, so join us there if you have your Bible. Proverbs 5, 3. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Oh, listen. That stuff is very enticing. Honeycomb lips and smooth, you know. And the opposite comes in verse 4. Her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on Sheol. You see, what you see is not what you get. 
Now, he gives a little advice because of this. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of her life, her ways are unstable, that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Now listen, you can't figure this out. She's subtle. She's sneaky. Now listen to me. Remove thy way far from her, and come not near the door of her house. You know, you're not going to have a problem committing adultery with somebody if you don't go where they are. Take a lot of brains to figure that out. Lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. You know what happens when a person gets into that problem? They lose their honor. They lose their respect. And instead of being with honored people, they wind up with the cruel people. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth. A person could actually come to the place where he loses his fortune. Many a man has destroyed his life over women. Many a man today is saddled with paying so much alimony he can hardly live himself. And all of his money is going out. Even strangers are filled with your wealth and your labors be in the hands of an alien or the house of an alien. People have lost their life and their livelihood through immorality. And thou mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. When you get old and you can't function anymore physically or sexually and you have absolutely nothing but the pain and the agony and the remorse. And then you will say, verse 12, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. What a fool that I did what I did. Look at verse 18. Now, God isn't against sex. Oh, no, He invented it. He is for it. Verse 18, let thy fountain be blessed. And that's talking literally about a man's ability to procreate. And rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Live it up. That's, that's God's designed that. Sex is a fabulous thing, a beautiful thing. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant rose. Speaking of deer-like animals. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. I mean, this is great, you know, live it up, enjoy, see. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his going. Why would you go off and commit adultery when you know that the Lord is what? Watching. He's watching. Well, look at chapter 6, interesting section, verse 24. Now, this is practical. Listen to this. Verse 23, you better start. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Now, he says God's law is going to give you the right path and the right light, and you're going to see the truth. Here it comes. Keep, to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a foreign woman. Foreign simply means other than your own now watch. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. Oh, you got to watch those eyes. <laughs> always the sex symbol, you know, with the half-opened eyes. Oh, that sneaky thing. <laughs> let her take thee with her eyelids. See, nothing new, folks. You know, Maybelline hasn't changed anything. Now, you see what happens when this occurs in verse 26. For by means of an unchaste woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread. Something as elevated and high and lofty as a man, designed in the image of God, is brought down as if he were nothing but a piece of bread. And the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You think you're going to commit sex in and get away? You're wrong. You can't take fire in your bosom without burning your clothes. 
That's pretty clear. Can one go on hot coals and his feet not be burned? Verse 28. Verse 29, so he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever touches her shall not be innocent. Verse 32, whoso commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. You know, it is stupid to commit adultery. Why? Because he that doeth it destroyeth his own what? Soul. God may forgive it, but that doesn't make it right, and that doesn't make it smart. Second thing, sin of adultery not only harms, it controls. Look at 6.12 again. All things are lawful for me, middle of the verse, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The Greek verb to be brought under the power means to come under the domination of or the power of something. And it really means to enslave. I will not be enslaved. And there is no more enslaving thing than sexual evil. This thing wants to subject. And it does. Here are the Corinthian Christians in the name of liberty losing their freedom and becoming slaves. In the name of Christian freedom, they had become slaves to their own desires. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God concerning you that you be sanctified, even your sanctification, that you stay away from sexual sin. The next verse says that every one of you know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. And the word vessel means body. Every one of you know how to possess his body, that you know how to possess your body. If you're going to stay away from sex sin, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, then verse 4 says you have to control your body. You have to get control of your flesh. In Romans 8, 13, Paul put it this way. He said, kill the flesh, mortify the flesh, master the flesh, gain control. And you know, you can get in a situation where you're not in control at all. Whoa, you're, you've lost control. You get to the place where you're victimized by your drive. Keep it in control, Paul says. Possess your vessel. Control your body. So you don't become a slave. Paul says, yes. All things are lawful, but you do that and it'll enslave you. You'll become a slave. And I have never seen anything so enslaving in the lives of individuals as that particular area of sin. A third thing, and this is the major part of the passage, and believe it or not, we'll run through it quickly. Sin not only harms and enslaves sex sin, but it perverts. Verse 13. Quickly, we'll look at it. And He gives three distinct purposes and designs for our bodies that are perverted by sexual sin. Foods for the body, verse 13, and the body for foods. That was their little statement. He says, wait a minute, but God shall destroy both it and them. You can't say, well, look, the body's for food and food's for the body and sex is for the body and the body's for sex. It's just That's all there is to it. It's just biological. You can't say that. Because God is going to destroy food and God is going to destroy stomachs. That's the real word here, stomach. God is going to wipe that out. But the body is not for sexual sin. It's for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, and I'll prove it to you because God has both raised up the Lord and will also what? Raise up us by His power. You know why your body is different? Because your body someday is going to be what? Raised up. Your body isn't just a temporal commodity. You know, there's coming a time in this world where we're going to be raised. The rapture, some, we're just going to go from the grave. The bodies are going to be brought out of the grave. You say, what if there's nothing left? That's no problem for God. He just makes them all come together again. We're going to be in heaven in bodies, literal bodies. 
And so he's saying, look, food that is eating, the necessity for eating, the digestive processes of the stomach, that'll all cease. God will wipe that all out. But the body, you, the total man incorporated in that flesh, that is going to be glorified and transformed into heaven. So don't think that the biology of eating is equal to what you do with your body. In terms of its union, there's a big difference. Now, he gives three distinct purposes. First of all, he says, your body is for the Lord. Verse 13, it is for the Lord. Eating is a natural function, but sex is far more than a natural function, people. Sex, listen to this, is a spiritual union. It transcends the biological. C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters, every time a man and a woman enter into a sexual relationship, a spiritual bond is established between them which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. God says, I'm going to destroy stomachs and I'm going to destroy food, but bodies, no. The Bible never says God's going to destroy eternally the body. That body is going to be glorified. The body of a Christian is going to spend its eternity with Jesus Christ in a glorified state. Our bodies are not just biological commodities. They have biological aspects and biological functions, but they are far beyond that. Between food and the stomach, there is a horizontal line. Between my body, my person, and the Lord, there is a vertical relationship, and it must not be defiled because God wants me presented to Jesus Christ, a chaste virgin, right? Spiritually. Your stomach was made for food, but your body wasn't made for sex. It was made for God. And within God's will, sex is included in marriage. Outside of that, you violate it. And the proof of it is in verse 14, God's going to raise your body out of the grave. Don't defile that thing which was designed to spend eternity with Him. You can't say sex is for the body and the body for sex. The body is for the Lord. Second thing. He says, not only is your body for the Lord, but it is one with Christ. Look at verses 15 to 18. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Malay, the, the normal word for the member of a physical body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? May genita. God forbid, may it never happen. He says, look. You are one with Christ. You are the members of Christ. When you were saved, you were joined to Christ. Every one of us is a member of His body. Isn't that right? Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 5. We are all made one with Christ in His body. And if we are committing acts of sin, we are joining Christ to that prostitute. God forbid. Sex sin is sickening. It is unthinkable that I would use Jesus Christ in a sex relationship. Could you imagine if Christ was on earth, going to Him and saying, Lord, I am going over here to commit adultery. Would you please come and partake with me? You say, Carthage, that's blasphemous. You better believe it, but it's no more blasphemous than a Christian committing adultery because he's dragging Christ into it, right? You're a member of Christ. Sex is a union of two becoming one. Thus, in a Christian's immorality, there is the most gross profaning of making Christ one with that sin. Sex is not just biological. No, it is spiritual. It is two becoming one. That's the way God designed it. It unites two people. That's why the Old Testament says when there are two single people, if a man lies with a woman, then he marries her. Why? Because they've consummated a spiritual union. 
And that's why the Bible says that when adultery is committed, that's grounds for divorce. Why? Because they have consummated a union outside the marriage. Two becoming one is not just biological as the integrating of two people in the deepest parts of their being. And that's why C.S. Lewis says what you have is an eternal spiritual bond, either to be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. The Corinthians or any Christian who commits an act of sexual sin drags Jesus Christ into it. Well, look what he says in verse 16. What? Know you not that he who is joined to a prostitute is one body? Yes, that's right. For two shall be one flesh. When you unite with a prostitute, you become one flesh with that prostitute in the deepest sense of, of communion of your beings. The sex act is not just biological. It is the uniting of two persons in the deepest, most intimate sense. And when you do that with a prostitute, you've drawn a union with that prostitute. When you do it with somebody outside your marriage, you've drawn a union with that person. And if you're joined to Jesus Christ, you dragged him right into it. Verse 17, he that is joined to the Lord is what? One spirit. You're one with him. How could you ever drag him into that? To be one with him. The result, he says in verse 18, flee sexual sin. Get out of there. You know the smartest way to handle sexual sin? Just get out of there. I said, you can't have a problem if you're not around. You know, Joseph was a smart guy. He got in there and Potiphar's wife started laying it on him. Oh, Joseph, you big hunk of men, you know, all this. And oh, Joseph just realized only one way out of this. He took off like a shot. She grabbed his coat and that's all she got. He was gone. Say, no, I'm going to face it and gain the victory. That's ridiculous. Get out of there. Well, I must know how the world lives. Got to be aware of these things and show my strength. Just get out of there. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful lust. Get out of there. Don't sit there and take it in. Get out. If you're looking at something that isn't good, get out of there. If you're reading something that isn't good, junk it. If you're in a situation that's going the direction of compromising, sorry, boom, go. You say, well, they won't understand. Well, who cares? Whether they understand, just get out of there. Some simple solutions, aren't there? Everything isn't complicated. Verse 18 further. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he that commits fornication or sex sin sins against his own body. Now, that's very difficult to understand what Paul meant because he doesn't really elucidate on it. But what I think he means is this, that while sexual immorality is not necessarily the worst sin, it is the most unique in its consequences. It has a way of internally destroying a man and a woman that no other sin has. Why? Because of all sins, it is the one sin that is the spiritual union of two persons. You can commit other sins, and those other sins may be superficial. They may affect you at some level, but the sin of a sexual intimacy with somebody else is the deepest uniting of two persons. Therefore, it has the unique kind of sin that destroys a man at the very roots of his being. You know, it is far more destructive than alcohol. It is far more destructive than drugs. It is far more destructive than crime. It is the deepest penetrating sin that a man can commit because it unites him to another person in the vileness of that sin. I'll never forget seeing a girl who came to me at 16 years old and said she wanted to kill herself. She didn't want to live another day. She hadn't looked in a mirror in months because she couldn't stand her own face. I said, why? She said, because I'm so rotten from so many acts of sexual sin. She was destroyed. She looked like she was 40 years old just destroyed. And I'll never forget the joy that was mine in leading her to Jesus Christ. And the first thing she said to me was, for the first time in years, I feel clean. Oh, that's grace. 
thank God. All sin blackens, all sin devastates, but this sin destroys a person at the roots of his being. It harms him, it devastates him, it enslaves him, and it just diametrically opposes everything God intended for the body of a Christian. It's for the Lord, and it's one with Christ. Third, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, what? Know ye not, that's the sixth time he's used that formula in this chapter, common knowledge. Isn't it common knowledge to you that your body is the shrine or the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have of God? You didn't induce the Holy Spirit. You didn't earn the Holy Spirit. You didn't seek the Holy Spirit. He was given as a gift. And you aren't even your own. You're His temple. You say, how come I'm His? Because verse 20 says, He bought you with a price. And what was the price? First Peter 1, 18 and 19, for you were not redeemed with gold and silver, precious stones, None of those things, but you're redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without spot, without blemish. What was the price he paid? His blood. Listen, he bought you. You're the shrine of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of the living God, he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. You're the temple of the living God. God dwells in you. How can you drag the Holy Spirit into this? You are the temple of God. The living God dwells in you. You are the sacred shrine. Don't you know that? How could you desecrate? How could you mutilate? How could you defile the temple of the Spirit of God? That's, that's who you are, sacred shrine of the Holy Spirit. Listen, are you defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit? Are you dragging your union with Christ? Are you dragging Jesus Christ into a, into a sinful situation? Are you making Him one with a prostitute? You say, well, what's a prostitute? Anybody who prostitutes the right meaning and use of sex. Are you using your body for biological expression? Forget it. Your body is for the Lord. You see, it's just incongruous. And what is the result of all of this? Verse 20, he says this, Therefore, glorify God in your what? Body. The rest of the verse doesn't appear in the best manuscripts. Glorify God in your body. That's it. What should you do with your body? Glorify God with it. Praise God with it. Make it a shrine where somebody can worship. How could you defile yourself? God will forgive you. That's right. He'll forgive you. He always does. But it will harm you. You'll pay a tremendous price. And it'll control you. And it'll pervert the design God has for you. And so I say to you what Paul said to the Ephesians, sex, sin, let it not once be named among you. This is Grace to You with John MacArthur. Thanks for being with us. John is the pastor of Grace Community Church. He's the chancellor of Masters University and Seminary. His current study is called Guidelines for Singleness and Marriage. Well, friend, whether you're preparing for marriage or you're a newlywed or you've been married for years, I highly recommend you pick up John's book, Divine Design. It spells out God's unique design for men and women and the implications of that design for your marriage. Page by page, you will see how marriage reflects the relationship between Christ and His church, and how your home today can be a place of lasting peace and joy. To get your copy of Divine Design, contact us today. Call our toll-free number, 855-GRACE, or go to gty.org. Divine Design is a practical resource that can help you avoid the age-old conflicts between men and women and no blessing in your home that the unbelieving world cannot understand. 
To order a copy for yourself or a friend, call 800-55-GRACE or go to gty.org. And when you visit gty.org, that's our website, make sure to take advantage of the thousands of free resources that you'll find available there, including Grace Stream. That's a two-month, verse-by-verse study through the entire New Testament. That's right, it's non-stop teaching from Matthew through Revelation, and then it starts all over again. It's really a -a one-of-a-kind way to fill your mind with truth from the New Testament. So whether you have 15 minutes to listen or a couple of hours, just jump into the Grace Stream today and anytime. You'll find Grace Stream at gty.org. Now for John MacArthur, I'm Phil Johnson, inviting you to be here when John continues his look at timeless principles that lead to God's blessing in your relationships. That lesson comes your way tomorrow with another 30 minutes of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace to You. Grace to You.